This is the Game Theory Podcast, Episode 15, Design Innovation, with Brian Fife, Jim Fingal, and Tom Westberg. I'm Brian. And I'm Tom. And I'm Jim. And, uh, and this is the Game Theory Podcast. This is Episode 15 for us, and we're not going to do, I, I've been told we're not going to do the indie episode. Is that right, Jim? We've talked about different topics like weird indie games and the indie game episode potential topics yeah for an yeah. episode i was trying to think of like what would actually be interesting to talk about those things when i think about games like this the thing that i want to talk about is oh i want to talk about all these awesome games that i really enjoyed playing that that i thought were interesting in these different ways that seemed a little bit boring and so i was trying to think of how to talk about those games but in a way that was more broad where we could make more interconnections between these games and other games that, that we've played what i arrived at that would be interesting to talk about is just or throw away the, the indie part of things since if the topic is indie games then we get into the the uninteresting argument of is x in the category of y like is this really an indie game what does an indie game mean and more directly focus on the things that we find interesting that so happen to appear a lot in indie games. One of the things that we've observed and talked about a lot is the way in which air quotes indie games have become much more accessible, much more mainstream because of all the distribution methods like we talked about last time. And, you know, the fact that, that people can make money, that the cost of making these games go down. All the, the many great things about technology is sort of I think accelerated the pace of innovation or created a richer field for, for development. But, but this stuff goes way back, right, Jim? Like those technological things have enabled new voices to come in and, and be able to contribute to, to the field and make new sorts of games. But the label itself, the idea of being into indie games or, or celebrating indie games is a little misleading because there are a lot of like pretty bad indie games that are, not that interesting, or are, are small team ripoffs of uh, games that already exist, or some minor variation of, of like a match three game. When I was thinking about that and getting a little uneasy with the idea of just talking and celebrating indie games, that that's when I wanted to back up and and think about innovation. For a moment, let me rise in defense of. Uh, indie game teams that just do derivations because they have to learn. It's it's not like everybody is born a Picasso of the video game industry. And in, in lots of cases, they're just learning their craft and they start by taking apart a portal or a pong or a doom and try to do it and then just change one or two things. And it's, it's true. It's not going to be interesting to most of us. But for people who do that and stick with it, those are the people who actually can grow on into people who actually may, may come up with some of the innovations that you'll talk about later. Yeah, so that's not to say that there's anything wrong with the people who make those games. But I, th I think the assertion is more that just because it's made by a small team doesn't make the game itself interesting. Like it certainly could be like what they're doing and in, in the, the process that they have to go through in order to make those uninteresting games might itself be, be interesting and might lead to bigger and better things. Yeah. But put uh, it, put another way, 
you know, the, the whole indie game scene is interesting in and of itself and good, but the output in aggregate is is not <laughs> necessarily. I, I'm I'm uneasy with the idea of just cheerleading every indie game out there because we sort of start to lose a critical distance and I guess just distinction. Yeah, I don't need a cheerlead. Don't misunderstand me there. I'm I'm just saying th- these are like early novels and and for the game industry they're essentially self-published novels and there's little that should uh make you more tense than the idea of reading somebody's self-published fantasy novel. Oh yeah, shields up, shields up. <laughs> yeah, and certainly like I'm I'm starting to explore game technology and the first thing I'm doing is just trying to copy open source game engines that are out there. Because when I think about innovation and design innovation, I guess one of the axes that to me is interesting is is when games take conventions of previous games that, that have existed and mess with them or subvert them in, in ways that makes the gameplay and the experience particularly interesting and rewarding. And of course, to do that, you have to understand how the conventions work what what has come before in order to like be in the position of of making those subversions i guess like like anything else if you don't have a deep understanding of and potentially even love of the original work it's hard to really do something brilliant based on it right there's the different categories of of like art, of artistic growth or of the evolution of artistic forms. You certainly have some outsider art that is either not influenced by things or is only minorly influenced by things and is totally in its own world. And then you have the rest of the people who are engaged with the the history of games and know these no platformers, no first person shooters, no puzzle games, but want to make something different. Yeah, not not just not just the next version, but something different. I mean, if you if you search for innovative games or most you know top ten SEO list of innovative games, you're going to get things like Zelda and Mario games. You know, Dune Two always shows up the 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 first you know formative RTS game games that were the beginning of a long line of derivative works that kind of thing. I don't think that's exactly what you have in mind when you're thinking of innovative. Like something like the the technological innovation of of like the connect, like opening up new types of games, or the first real time strategy game. That's like a different kind of interesting from what Portal did. I have this writer that I enjoy, John Barth, who's a sort of old school postmodernist, and he has an essay called "The Literature of Exhaustion," where he talks about experimental literary forms, and he has this idea that basically. Certain forms of of experimentation or uh, artistic innovation by by going to a certain place, they become the last word in that place. They've created a new form and then they have immediately exhausted it, so that it's not something that can really be copied without seeming like a blatant ripoff of uh, the original work. And to me, the the mechanic in Portal is is a good example of that form of innovation. After Portal came out, it didn't inspire a bunch of Portal-like games. And if there were games that it's like, oh, it's a it's a puzzle game that involves portals uh, in a slightly different universe, I don't think that would really fly. That'd be like the movie Memento, right? Where you don't have other movies like it. It's sort of just a thing. The fact that 
it happened is a big part of the point and and doing it again would would belabor that point so you're sort of interested in in more of these kinds of games that represent that where it's a it's a fresh twist that does something completely different that doesn't necessarily open up a whole new range of games i'm trying to think you know we talked about tower defense as a as a genre a long time ago that was sort of created fairly recently and they they mined the crap out of it there's now a whole established body of games that have that have developed after that or the connect games the bejeweled clones the connect game connect three Oh, the Connect Three, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, not not Connect as an. Yeah, Xbox. you're freaking me out. The, yeah, the Bejeweled Clones are a, another good example of that, where there's a lot you can do on top of it, but it all sort of traces back to Bejeweled. We certainly can have a conversation about the the creation of new forms. The episode where we talk about the first games in particular genres may be a different, interesting topic to. This is an interesting direction because. Shouldn't we mostly value the category creators, the the things that actually open up whole new vistas of of video game play, rather than the one hit wonders, which is sort of what we're going for here? Uh, and a cynical view of of these is the innovations are simply gimmicks, and. I don't actually think of them that way. I actually, the fact that Portal hasn't, with the exception of, of say, Portal 2, hasn't really been followed, I, I don't think it means that it can't be. I just think the world has, the, the game community hasn't yet. I think it would be valuable to think of the, I guess, genre creators in, in other art forms too and think about how we receive those. So, you know, I, I think we do hold up the creator of the the first, like, realist novelist or the, you know, early modernist writers or early postmodern writers, people who sort of, like, set schools in motion. I think certainly we do value those things. I don't think it's a universal thing, but I find that interesting. But I also, I find a little bit more interesting... Those early expressions of a particular idea aren't necessarily the best expressions. Well, yeah, you, you certainly can't argue that, that Dune 2 was better than StarCraft. Right, and I, th- and I think from... Well, and that's why I'm, I'm more interested in whole new categories or, or the notion that some number of years from now when the Oculus Rift and whatever other input technologies go along with it to make virtual reality... Uh, commonplace that uh, some sort of portal-like mechanic might fit to that and people will look back on portal just as they look back on an 8-bit Nintendo game as a progenitor. Well, we've talked a lot about portal. Jim, what are some other examples of games you you feel fit into this category of design innovators? I think I'll, I'll, I'll throw it there like a couple examples and how in my mind they, they satisfy this, this sort of fuzzy idea of, of innovation. The types of innovations that, that I've been thinking about when like listing out the games that I think are great and, and trying to, to think of like what it is about them that I think are great. I mean, one example is a game like Limbo, which like it's a puzzle platformer with some cool physics stuff and there's 
some like minorly interesting things like towards the end with with gravity f- flipping up and down but what is the particularly awesome about limbo is the like the environment the the design the the mood that you know it starts out very quiet it's it's this very dark black and white world uh, where you're a child moving around and you you come across these like hanging children and there are these disturbing giant spider monsters that come after you and uh, like disintegrating like urban landscape in the background uh, i think people responded to that not so much because the the game mechanics were innovative which is i think why we we like games like portal which you know open the door or you know open and then close the door if uh if what we're thinking about portal is right to 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 new modes of gameplay but rather the the design or or the the mood of the game minds or or gets at emotions that we don't usually feel when we we play games and and that being an aspect of like the music the visuals the the narrative and not so much the the actual play mechanics so that's that's like one category i i i think that flow probably falls in in a similar category yeah well you know not having really the ability to die or not having score and yet having something that, that is pretty much a a complete game stands apart right it it feels like a an arcade game but the difference is uh, rather than an arcade game that's like blooping at you and where you have this concept of sc- of score or this adrenaline rush where you're you're almost succeeding in doing something but then you know you don't quite do it so you have to put another coin uh, or something like that it's the mood to to flow which is similar to to Osmos is this this like ambient like chill out <laughs> type type vibe where it's a it's a game that is relaxing which is a very small percentage of games that are out there yeah now Osmos did have that tricky puzzler aspect of it but it had the same feel i agree of just like enjoying the interaction of the game like just just sort of enjoying being in the game and the puzzle aspect, I mean, there was, there was a puzzle aspect, but in order to optimally complete the puzzles, you had to slow down and like not try to move around too fast and sort of like mind meld with, with the, the chill out zone that, that the game wanted to evoke. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the time slider in that game. It's very interesting. Yeah, there's a time slider and there, there would often be, be puzzles in which the faster that you move or the, or the more that you interact, the the more bubbles that that you let loose and the like the smaller that you get the the farther away you generally are from victory. Yeah, well so one thing you can do is you can move very very slow and then crank up the speed of the game time base so that you move a little quicker so you're not just bored out of your mind. I think flow and and limbo fall in in that that mood category where I think what it, what it gets at for me which I think a, a lot of these games that w- when I think of indie games or innovative games, there there is often this this aspect to it of of there just being a fundamentally different emotion other than just sort of like giddy exhilaration or I won, uh, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, wh- which which I very much enjoy when playing other games, but a lot of these games are attractive to me because they 
they evoke like novel, different emotions I'm not used to uh, having in video games. Uh, part of it's through the the mood. Sometimes it's through mechanics, and there there are things that are particularly interesting about these other games that, uh, aside from just the design. But I have noticed that that is a common thread that that goes between them. I, I it seems an awful lot of them are sort of the uh, Ingmar Bergman movies of of video game creation. That they, they they tend to be quite moody. Yeah, and as I was going through this and I was, you know, making notes of the game, it's like, oh, there's like a melancholy mood to it and that's like particularly interesting. I started to realize it's like, oh, well, a fair number of these are are very melancholy and and maybe that in and of itself is uh is becoming like pretty common <laughs> as as a way to to uh to separate yourself. Well, I I get a sense that's just because the modern games are either sort of woodenly dark or you know, full of sunshine, right? And it's and hard. comedy is very hard. Yeah, when it's done well, it's awesome, but it's 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 scary to try. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think like Portal Two feels like a ripoff of of both Portal and uh, Tag: The Power of Paint in terms of mechanics, but it was extremely funny. It had the wait, it was Stephen Merchant, is that who isn't it? Yes. So I was trying to think of a few that I could add to the list. Certainly, I think Electroplankton fits in the category, which was a DS game that was was basically an audio toy. It's sort of just this weird anomaly, and you don't really want to own five games that do that. So what was the... I, I think we've talked about this a bit, but can you... But it's it's a, a game that has these little plankton critters, and they can do different things. One of the One of the game modes is a plant where you can adjust the angle of the leaves and drops fall and bounce off the leaves in a way that makes uh, chime tones. Another game is, you know, where you're touching the little critters and they make music. So there's just all kinds of different ways you can make sound and it's all throwaway sounds. You, you can't, you're you don't not, really make songs out of it. You're not making songs. No, you're just making audio stuff. And I think Bjork did stuff like this with with her, her recent album. She released all the tracks as apps. But th- this was the first time I'd ever heard of this. I, I had to buy the game in overseas, but I think it's it's here now. And uh, it was a lot of fun and a totally different way to interact with uh, the, the DS. Yeah, I would like to borrow that because, as, as a side note, I think in in my video game endeavors the 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 first thing that i'm i'm going to try to to do is like a sound toy game since i feel like that would like touch a lot of bases in terms of the skill acquisition needed to make a make an app like that uh, you know trying to think of other ones it was a bit of a stretch for me i mean is sonic the hedgehog a innovative design game just because of the way that it, it just it was that a technical accomplishment, the way that they they built that in. I mean, certainly there were a lot of things that did differently, where you didn't really die and just different. Sonic right? didn't die. Well, I mean, you dropped the rings, so you had a, a second chance, and yes, it was a lot harder to die. I guess it wasn't nearly as punitive as Mario. <laughs> right. Yeah, I th- I, th- I would I think it, it falls in the into the category just because. Like there was something about how fast you moved in that game that was, I mean that that was like its claim to fame was that Sonic was was really fast and you could go through the world just like zooming past it and 
and finish the level in 10 seconds. God, I still think of the Starlight level. You know, playing through that when I was a kid, and uh, we, we were young. It was an accomplishment to get that far. And, like, the music was beautiful. The, the level design was beautiful. And it was just, it was probably... 11 30 or you know one in the morning or something we were playing and what a vivid memory i have of of getting to that was with a couple of friends yeah the genesis was was one of the systems in in that generation of game systems that i had i got sonic for for xbox and like a as an xbox download and the thing that i forgot about it is that it's just like an old school game where you have to like get enough lives so that you can you can play through it and you know there weren't really saves. And yeah, the game the game you, would end. It would just drop yeah, you the, off. <laughs> the game would end, and then you'd have to like start from the beginning to try again. You know, I had some other ones. I thought about is Alien versus Predator the first person shooter innovative in the way that it introduced radically different play mechanics of players fighting each other where you know the aliens were climbing on walls and the predators were badass and the marines were really slow and weak and tasty. I'm not sure that that was really different enough to fit into that category. I've, I haven't played that, though. I mean, that is like when people talk about Left 4 Dead multiplayer, that, that's the thing that people like about it, right? Where the idea of... Be, because the the Counter-Strike model or the Halo model where everyone's on a totally level playing field is is like pretty standard. The idea of, of having something that's like more similar to StarCraft where you, you have different modes that you could play in uh, that have their different strengths and, and weaknesses. Uh, balanced asymmetry, yeah. Yeah. You know, Jer- Journey is this game that takes multiplayer and turns it into a beautiful thing. Left 4 Dead did the same thing, where you couldn't be a serious player of the game and not be absolutely team-oriented. Like, every component of the game kept circling you back to stick with your party, save your brother, all, all that stuff. And that was, especially at the time, was not a a common concept, right? I mean, that was always in the guides of how to play well, but there was nothing in the game mechanics that enforced that. Playing a lot of Team Halo, it, it often you're you're just like off in different parts of the map, and you're talking to each other and you're coordinating, but there's not the same like stick together because if someone gets separated, then then they're totally gone. Yeah, the, the game will, will harshly and and <laughs> and very insistently remind you that that's not a good idea. Yeah. Tom, do you have anything on your list? I was going through this and discovering that I have very standard tastes these days. I I'm pretty much do fast food of, of games. Probably the, the most interesting things I find now where I'm willing to try something out will tend to be an iPhone or an iPad game. You recently pointed out Hundreds, which is, I think, a very interesting game that's both reaction-based and an, an interesting puzzle game in terms of trying to grow objects up to in, in their size as they, they count up until they hit 100. But there are all sorts of different things that, that uh, will fight against you completing it. And um, an older iOS game that I enjoyed was called Galcon, which was a... Risk that really was unique, wasn't it? When it came out, for sure. I, I can't think of anything like it. I yeah. mean, it's a very s- simple graphic. It's it's essentially real time risk attacking planets and so forth. And and when you take over a planet, you get its resources and you you start uh, attacking nearby ones. And it's it's quite an interesting set of gameplay. 
Yeah, you're you're jumping your your fleet of ships from planet to planet, and in order to conquer more planets, you have to spread your forces thin. But then you're easier to attack. But you know, you can sort of fluidly move your ships anywhere you want to at any time. So there's a lot of dynamic interaction between players, right? And it uses the touch interface well, and that's oh, sort very of thing. well. Yes. Yeah, very well. I, I can't imagine anybody playing it on PC, even though it's supported there. Toadjam and Earl on the Genesis took uh, the, the standard platformers and added uh, for its day an awful lot of, of humor, which was difficult when in the, the small size cartridges that they had to fit the games into. So they couldn't have a lot of speech and such. And, and they also had a catchy tune in the background. But that's going well back. We're allowed to go back. This isn't just, doesn't, I happen to identify with mostly modern games in this category, but. Uh. They, they managed to make all of the, the earthling enemies uh, be uh, amusing at the same time that they were challenging. And it was uh, fun to move from level to level. And in, in terms of uh, gameplay, uh, each world was randomly generated as you, as you came upon the level. So it, it uh, was a uh, repeatable game. Is it anything like Earthworm Jim? Toe and Earl? The imagery is, is reminding me a little of it. Like the over-the-top, like super weird characters. Like, no, Battletoads, I think, is what you're thinking of. I guess it, it's probably similar in terms of attitude and such. But, but basically, there are two different characters. They have sort of different characteristics. And so you want to switch from one to another and, and in, in terms of how you encounter different situations and find the pieces of your spaceship, which are scattered across different levels of, of, of the world. Anything else old school that we can think of that, that stands out in that way? I mean, it, it's, it's totally possible that there is something about, uh, about modern games that, uh, that makes these qualities jump out in, in the sense that we've sort of like caught up to, uh, or the, we're like in a different phase of, of evolution of, of the art form. I think it was too expensive to experiment back in the old days, especially when you needed a, a developer license and approval by the studio to ship something on a console. You know, big money, a lot of time, and, and too much risk. You're putting boxes on shelves. And that's where like, the, indie, uh, the indie emphasis comes in. Absolutely, yeah. One of the, the first big smash em up indie games, right, was uh, World of Goo. Yeah. And uh, that was cool and, and still stands apart. But then there are there are these also games that, in my mind, I associate with indie games, but aren't really in fact indie games, like like Portal or Shadow of the Colossus. Those are more like art films, right? Uh, some more accessible than others. It has something in common with indie games because there's like a strong authorial voice, in, and it's made by a small team of designers who stay together and and work on multiple games uh, with Shadow of the Colossus, Ico or Ico or however you say it came before that. And then they worked on Shadow of the Colossus and, and they're on to uh, a new game that I'm really looking forward to now. Similarly with, uh, with Flow and Flower and, and Journey, I guess it's the auteur designer who is somehow able to within, I guess the, that game company is, is more on, on the, on the indie spectrum though, work a lot with, uh, with Sony for with the the PlayStation, I, yeah, I think they're they're owned by Sony now. But it, they came from a philosophical or academic background first, right? It was like a grad student's work, 
in something. A group of people who are able to 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 sort of carve out the space to to make really idiosyncratic games within a larger corporation or at least a corporation that is a hundred or more people. Yeah. Tom has a little announcement to make. I do. Yes, you do. Have you played Journey? Yes. And it is a good game. It is beautiful. It's just a nice sensation to be there and to move. I, I granted all of that. So I was trying to keep my cool hip aloofness and and it fell so Tom was over uh we were gonna play tanks and i just said we're going upstairs <laughs> <laughs> you are not allowed to play tanks and, until you sit down and play this game for at least 45 absolutely minutes. and he did and you know tom had fun zoe had fun everybody had fun yes this was yes there there was this this uh uh veneer of let's play this for zoe uh <laughs> That's sort of like how we we played Connectimals uh, that uh, that Zoe could. That's watch. right. Yeah, it was for her. Yes. The poor thing, you know, she's still just not quite tall enough to register on the sensor reliably. Now, Tom, you've seen her play uh, the Connect Party yes. game, but and Jim, you haven't seen that yet, right? What is the Connect? The Double Fine game where they use the Connect to create a bunch of mini games. Is that like Mario Party? Uh, it's more like WarioWare, <laughs> oh, okay. but, but with a bunch of connect based games, you know, next time you come by, by the way, you should. Yeah. Next time I'm invited. You're invited. I'm just telling you right now you're invited. Um, open invitation is not a real. Okay. How about next week? Okay. It doesn't work. Well then why don't you tell me what works? And then we'll, we'll work <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow it. morning. Uh, long, short story long. We'll get you on that. You'll try it out. It'll be good. WarioWare is an interesting example of, I think is, is like a very innovative idea. That that came out in the in the Mario uh, in the Mario world. Just the idea of the the micro game. Yeah, and the fact that a bunch of not super fulfilling elements could be strung together to make something that was pretty awesome. The the wide variety of novelty of, ex- of experience that that gives you is itself part of the point. Even if each of the games themselves are throwaway. Yeah, well, we've talked about this before, but that, that's why I love Congregate. There's a lot of really bad games that have one really good idea as part of them. And, and often there's not enough depth or richness to sort of stretch out a, a full game or even a, a short-form game out of it. But it's still interesting, right? On the other hand, MarioWare is kind of fun in a, in a way because they also revel in the fact that all of the games are these cheapo games. It's the cynical Wario exploiting you. With his cheesy games, and and uh, so that infuses the entire thing. Uh, when you talk about higher level design and, and things coming into play, like there are a number of different levels that have different lead characters, that the games are all somewhat associated with that, right? Where you go, oh, this this is the the game that comes with this character, and that's a game that comes with the other character, the taxi driving, you know, hound dog or whatever they are. This is the point where I admit I haven't actually played WarioWare. I've only I've only read about it, but it sounds awesome. Yeah, I mean, Ra- Raving Rabbits didn't have that, right? They didn't have such a strong narrative theme among it. But that that was a derivative game. That was the same kind of game. And I played the game, but within that, there was a lot of repetition of of the types of games that you were playing, and so it it felt. It felt a little bit tiresome uh, after a certain point because it's like, oh, I have to. This meaningless game was fun the first time I played it, but 
I have to play another five times in in different forms and different levels. Well, part of that's because they're they're so tied to the Wii control; they don't want to move away from that. And so there's a limit to how many different mechanics you have when you're stuck in that. Although I did love the brush your teeth, shave your face, clean your ears game. <laughs> but the other category of games that sort of alluded to, but games that generally follow a convention but deviate from it in a particularly interesting way. And this is where games like Mirror's Edge jump out, the the first-person non-shooter games. <laughs> Mirror's Edge particularly has a lot of the trappings of, of, of first-person shooter games in that it's a very detailed world. It's you know more stylized than realistically rendered. There are guys running around w- with guns, but the particular thing that you do in this game is you avoid them <laughs> and you try to run away from them. Like any sensible person would do, yeah. Yeah, it's like you're, you are able to like grab their guns and maybe fire it, but you can't carry guns. And you, and you certainly don't carry ammunition. You're talking about, yeah, leaning on a grammar that's well understood or vocabulary that's, that's well understood. I wonder if Dungeon Keeper falls into that uh, same boat. Dungeon Keeper, the game where you you play the uh, the keeper of the dungeon. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if it's a lot. A lot of times, I think that you're the bad guy this time, not the you know. It's it's just a thematical gimmick that drives a story along. So I'm I'm skeptical whether Dungeon Keeper fits in, but but often there's not a deep and meaningful underlying mechanic that that backs it up, right? Well, yeah, I guess what that doesn't do what what something like Mirror's Edge does is it, it draws attention to the the things that you take for granted about the form or or the genre that that you've been that you've been playing and it makes you question whether or not what has arisen to be the dominant form is is the best way to do it or if the the way that the the form has evolved is actually like really limited because uh, it it hasn't explored these alternate modes of uh, of of gameplay well, yeah and a, a, like a true you're the bad guy game would would be such that there were maybe four good guys in the whole game, and you had just hordes and hordes of bad guys to throw at them uh, to to sap them out or something. Yeah, I think more in the category of like that thing would, would be the sorts of of games where you know you think you're being the good guy, but but slowly you realize that uh, that you're the bad guy. Well, there's also uh, one of the few games that I <laughs> one of the few games I actually bought on the PSP. The full title of the game is. Holy invasion of privacy, bad man. What did I do to deserve this? <laughs> that, that's a, a real game title? That's a real game title. Wow, and Sony let that through. Yeah, he let, they let that through. And so you're this guy who's, who's very funny, although I think a lot of the humor doesn't survive translation. And you're trying to create a monster farm underground in these you know caves. And it's one of those games where I have no idea how somebody could possibly learn how to play this game without a wiki. But it's it's extremely rich and complex, and you're sort of building a dungeon that will withstand the attacks of these terrible heroes that are trying to mess things up for you. Almost like a tower defense game, but a, a, a different a different mood or yeah, because in part, like instead of dropping towers, what you're doing is you're trying to create an environment where these monsters will come and move in, and then you know they, you have to feed them to make them more powerful. So there's just it's a it's an extremely complicated game. That uh, I I love the concept of, but wasn't able to get into as much as I I wanted to. So that falls in the category of ga- games that are interesting to think about, but not as fun to play. Oh yeah, uh, well, and you know, there's another category of 
game that is very similar, which is a game that I, that I often suspect was more fun to design and develop than to play. Horde falls into that category for me, where the incredible complexity of the way things flow, to, flow around in that game, it's hard for me to imagine that somebody actually playing the game would get to enjoy and, and take advantage of that in, in the same way that you don't really get to sit and savor the development and unlocking of tech trees if you're playing real-time strategy games competitively, right? You just plow to the tech point that you want and go, go, go. So the horde. What is the actual gameplay like in the in in the horde? Oh, oh yeah, uh, horde. We'll see. Horde is uh, a game where you're a dragon. Okay. But they have these countryscapes, right? That you're playing on as a playing field, fields and villages and castles and magician towers. And what sort of happens is, like, the village will send a cart to the field that will then take the grain back to town, and then periodically resources will go from the town to the castle and there's this whole interconnected web where there's this little economy that develops and things gradually become more powerful and as things build up the castle gets bigger the knights get more powerful blah 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 but as a dragon you can disturb any one of those elements you know you can keep the city very strong if you wish and burn the fields or you can just go and nuke the castle or you can keep the castle big and kill the knights the interesting thing about that, you, you showed me the gameplay once, is that essentially there is a point of despair in it at which the AIs have gotten powerful enough and you're, you're not going to get past them and, and so forth. And the game is going to take a long time for you to actually die, but it will happen. Well, and you're not actually playing against the town, right? You're playing against other dragons on the map. But as Thomas said, there's this balance that you try to strike between like, being able to suck the most resources out of the townspeople to make your own dragon stronger. Like your whole point is to get treasure. And if you keep them from advancing, then they're never going to develop their economy enough to where you can get a lot of money. But if you let them go too far, you let any one of those aspects go out of control, they'll nuke you. And so it's just this tough balancing act. The, the the idea of, of the the complex game that's probably more interesting to 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 design than to play sim life was was that for me where oh yeah of course it, it was it was like the the art on the book made it just seem so much more engaging than that than it was maybe the the ui design or the technology to to represent the cool things that were going on in that world like wasn't at the place where it needed to be but I definitely found myself pretty bored with that game, even though it, it in theory, was uh, innovative and interesting. Yeah, that, that was one of those games you could often find, you know, in libraries or in school computer labs. And I kept trying and trying and, yeah, could just not get into it. Yeah, it's a, that's a good one. Did anyone play Spore? After reading about it, it seemed to me that for all the give your alien five arms or two arms or 16 arms or whatever it is, all that stuff became meaningless once you got to like the third stage or whatever. And it just was aesthetic and that made me sad. Now, now Tom, we were talking about games that were not fun to play. I think, you know, one of the things that <laughs> one of the, I think we're, we're all thinking in our There's mind, interesting and, games that are not fun to play. we're all thinking in our mind and I'll just call it out. We, we were just, re- I just recently passed around a link to a discussion of an epic battle in Eve online that happened because somebody took one of these super spaceships 
and accidentally jumped to a sector when they they weren't intending to do that and it it started this whole war that that took over the you know most of the game world and there was this big warning at the bottom of the article that said warning eve is not as fun to play as it is to read about and i think that all that all resonated with us right yes sadly uh it it ends up looking like a linux x windows app for for most of the the ui with a, a few beautiful pieces of of 3d and then underneath it i think lots of of interesting gameplay mechanics and so forth for me it ends up losing the video part of the video game and uh it's almost like well, we started from a, a Spartan card game that, that had lots of interesting me- mechanics and so forth and just wanted to get it in. And by the way, we spent most of our time actually working on these cool underlying server technologies that allow us to scale to have a thousand people in a battle. For many of us, it would be nice if uh, some of the more user-friendly parts of it got, got fleshed out. If the text was bigger than eight point font, is it? I kept wondering why don't they just make a UI-less version of the game? <laughs> because then I could run it on any computer I wanted, and often the the graphics themselves are not that meaningful. Uh, or expose to get geeky, or expose their API to allow some talented <laughs> UI designers to do it. <laughs> we know what your dogs see. They're upset that. too. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And you know, we're bad mouthing you, but you know, we need to be clear. We we love what they've done with the game. We think the developers are great. It just you know, you always have to ask yourself a question when you look at an MMO is am I getting more out of this than I put in? And I think we've all come to the conclusion that the answer is no. And and part of that is that because the game revels in this griefing or PvP type culture and that's not what fun is for us as we're you know on the topic of complaining about games i i think an interesting way to bring this back to the the innovation topic is brian one thing that you and i have have talked about being annoyed about in in the past is the the sort of like fractal complexity of of games that have tons and tons of things to do that are entirely secondary to like the main story line side quests what's actually happening yeah yeah skinning yeah. skinning snakes in uh, red dead redemption yeah, and and that's where, uh, for me, uh, Shadow of the Colossus, which I mentioned before, the novelty in in that game is particularly the. I don't know if it's if if the way to to call it is is the arc, but it sort of took this action adventure game frame. But there's there are no towns in it. There are no dungeons. There are no characters other than you know the dead princess and you and your horse. Uh, all there is are these you know, 12 or I can't remember if it was 12 or 16 or however many giant like colossus boss monsters that are the only things that you engage with in the game. Each of them is a level that, that you have to climb on and sort of figure out how they move and figure out how to destroy it. But that for me is a particularly interesting game just because someone recognized, hey, we could throw away all that other stuff and that's not important and still create something that is is interesting that's a good point and i think we're all still waiting for the mmo that is only dungeons or raids or that sort of thing i don't think it's been built yet the the problem there is the the mmo that is only the primarily fun experience is one that 
is not going to eat up all of your time. <laughs> yeah, it's not profitable enough for sure. I mean, well, in in some ways, that's kind of what <laughs> it's what tanks is, but because uh, there's no there's no side quest, there's no resource gathering, uh, there's no skills. It's only battlegrounds. I think it's not. Those aren't really dungeons. No, that's a good point. I mean, but uh, Jim Jim's point is the real one, which is. Um, Either it'd be too hard to be accessible, or people would burn through the content so fast they'd go broke. Something like Dead Minds took a lot of time and attention and care to build. I also think the the, the dungeons were things you aspire to reach. You increase your level. Okay, I got some new powers so that I can have bigger enemies against me. Fine, fine, fine. But in fact. What it really did allowed two things. One, I, I'm now big enough to move into a, a region that I would get slaughtered in before. And the second is I now have these interesting dun- dungeons opening up to me. The regions themselves are probably just you know graphically different versions of what I've just been playing with, with big spider creatures instead of wolves. But the dungeons were the place that, that they got to, to try lots of different game mechanics and, and have a good time. If you didn't have those, if you only played those, it, it just becomes circular. If, if you only get the candy without any work to, to reach it, is, is that any fun? What this makes, made me realize about a lot of the games that were on my list is that a lot of them are games that are... 10 hours or less or you know in some instances five hours or less like in not aspiring to have a a 60 hour game there's the ability to have more focus on a singular experience and whether or not that's that's something that is is repeatable or not maybe there's something about maybe not the short form but just that a lot of these games sort of necessarily in focusing on the things that are most important uh, don't end up being gigantic 40 hour games i mean the way you do that is by padding out with other elements uh, yeah where th- there's 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 a richness of experience you know that that adage in in art that the 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 work of art is 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 not perfect when there's nothing left to add but when there's nothing left to take away type approach yeah one of the questions that has to come up if we're buying into your concept of design innovation is what happens as these games do grow older and what happens as technology moves on. I mean, one of the things we've seen is this resurgence of, of interest in retro games or games people used to play, you know, Kickstarters and XComs and all this thing. You've talked about the concept of, you know, these games sort of exhausting an idea. What, what do you do as they age? How do you, you know, do you... Do you do, do you carry them forward? Do you reboot them? What, what, what's your thought there? There is something about surfing the wave of, of innovation and keeping up with the, the, the newest, weirdest thing that is pushing the boundaries in, in different ways that, that I find interesting. Sort of identifying the boundaries and having the pleasure of experiencing them be like broken or, or crossed or whatnot. So, I mean, I think that the games that were discussed are games that, I mean, a lot of them are just plain fun to play right so there's replayability there perhaps they they become in the category of the other games that we talked about that that started a genre or they become more historical uh, artifacts i'm not really sure i can say that it's it's the the reception is probably different you know if indeed there are no games that end up being like portal 
then that's probably going to continue to exist in this category where it it stands alone and revisiting it you get a lot of the same experiences as when you played it the first time whereas that that probably wouldn't be the case for games that as we said like maybe the first rts versus starcraft yeah nobody wants to go back and play dune 2 i mean it was a great game at the time but nobody wants to go back and play that you know the thing that valve has done is when they get a new a dramatically new rendering engine they'll just reskin their games and move them forward i mean they did that with half-life they did it with counter-strike they did it a couple times right yeah, and the, and that's when we talk about the the retro games and re- reskin games. There's certainly a nostalgia there for the experiences that we had playing Half Life or that we had playing old school Super Nintendo RPG games. In a lot of circles, suspicion about the, you know the status of nostalgia as uh, an emotion or a motivating factor. For me, the retro games and the the Half Life skinning games is a way to once you've forgotten about something and you've, you've sort of moved on, you haven't thought about it for a while, a slightly different way to experience it where you're not just playing the same game over again, but you, it does give you a way to access those same emotions in the same way that if you know next weekend we were to, to order pizza, make chili dogs, and watch Terminator 2, that might be interesting. As great of a game as the original XCOM was, the world has moved on, and, and what we put up with in games has moved on. And so it's just absolutely tedious to go back and try to play that. Other people might disagree, but this is my opinion as a, as a real human person. Because the game is fiddly, the graphics are pretty poor. What I want is Enemy Unknown, right? I want the essence of that game in a more modern package. Or what I'm trying to get at is the emphasis on innovation through technology through like new new ways to render graphics or or even new ways for a person to interact with a device with with touchscreen or uh, the connect or whatnot well or innovation because you can render every blade of grass you know as 3d objects as opposed to just a static image or something like yeah that, right? as much as the next person i enjoy experiencing those sorts of innovations uh when they happen but i think when i look back at at games that that don't look old to me when I play them. It's games that are not attempting to surf that particular wave, but are attempting to achieve something different that m- might not rely on th- those new technologies. Uh, the the sort of like the metrics for success in in visually representing things, or in the the way that the user interacts with the games. It, it's a more like alien set of terms in which you you engage with it, uh, so it 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 sort of sets itself a, aside from from relying on th- those those te- technological bits of innovation and relying more on the the vision or the d- design innovation. One of the things I mentioned we were revving up for this episode was the no high scores guys have. <laughs> made several comments about this and I realized that I share their opinion. The proliferation of retro 8-bitty looking games for its own sake is is not at all interesting to me. You know, I, I don't understand why um, 100 million looks the way that it does. You know, there's certainly a call for and I think I've defended 
uh, simple, simplified or, or kind of pixelish art in the past as a way that the developer teams with limited resources can make you know, pleasant enough graphics without getting buried by needing huge art teams. But at the same time, making something look painfully retro is, is I think, just an attempt to invoke emotion without adding anything of substance. <laughs> I suspect it actually is because they don't have much of an art team and they think that's a, a good way to finesse the issue. Yeah, I, I, I think it's impossible to know without actually engaging with the team. Uh, certainly, I don't have the ability to do anything more than a, a pong paddle. What you're getting at is, I don't know why this popped in my head, but in, in a similar way that, that the term hipster is this thing that like doesn't really mean anything other than uh, this thing other than you that is all style and no substance. A, a similar vein of suspicion that people have about 8-bit games where the suspicion is is that the the visuals are trying to cash in on the the image for nostalgia's sake and, and not just that they couldn't do better graphics and that there's something cheap about that. Yeah, well, and we, we've talked about the you know, brilliance that exists in the spectrum where things like Cannabalt or things like yeah, Swords and Sorcery and also um, you know, the, the Pixel Junk stuff. I mean, that's, they're, they're doing complicated stuff to, make, to get that look, and that's craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. But there's sort of a lot of... Yeah, the Pixel Junk stuff is, is like, it, it's, it's like pixelated and cartoony, but they're, like, they're obviously like fluid dynamics happening. Yeah. Well, and if you look at, I mean, th- there was an article that somebody wrote that I may link in if I can find it, where somebody sort of disassembled some of the simple iOS animations. And, you know, the fact is they're using multiple layers, real 3D graphics acceleration to get effects that don't look that complicated yet are extremely sophisticated that, you know, you feel rather than see. And I think that's kind of what the Pixel Junk guys are doing. So good on them. Yeah, the, that, those are the Pixel Junk games are on my list of of games that I recommend people play if they have uh, a PlayStation. But they didn't quite make the cut of uh, of games on the list that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I'm not sure they they do, but they're just they're good and they represent tasty snacks, tasty tasty visual treats. Yeah, there you go. So we're we're running long. Anything else you want to um, talk about, Jim? I got to play Ico. I haven't I haven't played it yet. Yeah, I, I got to figure out. Is it like you buy the anniversary edition disc, or what's the best way to get all these? Yeah, games? you can get the for for the PlayStation. There's an anniversary disc, which similar to what we said about Half Life, they updated the visuals of both Ico and Shadow of Colossus. I think what happened was I started playing it and I got stuck and I forgot that I could just look up online what to do, <laughs> and so I stopped playing it. I, I I was tempted to you know swing by on my way home before the nor'easter and uh, pick up Nino Kuni. Because I've been hearing so much good stuff about that. What's that one? It's the uh, RPG that looks like uh, anime because it's done by the same studio that did Princess Mononoke and Howl's Moving Castle and those those films. Yeah, that's is it that is that a disc game or is that a download game? I believe it's a disc. I don't know if you can download it or not. I, I think it's only on the PS3. Okay. So no points for you. No points for me. No, no Xbox points. I think I have finally moved beyond the Xbox points. I'm playing Dishonored right now, and I accidentally killed some people, so I'm not going to get the uh, I'm not going to get the achievements. And I finally reached the point where I'm I don't care, and I'm just going to play through the game. Congratulations, good. That's and th- yeah, it's a mark of I've, I I chased them for long enough. If if only you know 
every game had an Iron Man mode. Yeah, where you're you're put in in the position of like you have to leave someone behind. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think the tyranny of these stealth games is there is a way to do it perfectly, and you sort of get in this rhythm of just doing it again and again and again and again until you get it right, and that's almost the expectation the game has, and that's that's not fun for anybody. Yeah, and that's what's particularly annoying about Dishonored is in those those like interstitial screens that give you text like hints about the game. One of the hints is save often. And I think that like pissed me off enough because because I am saving often because I want to minimize killing people and I and I'm in this mode where I want to do an area the best I can. But the idea that that would be like built into what the designers are telling you you should do in order to play the game, that's a failure of game design. Well, that's how game becomes work. And that's a problem. could be worse. They could have only little save points. Instead of allowing you to control it. Oh, I just, I couldn't believe Mass Effect, right? Before one of the boss fights, there's an, you know, the save points in one of the boss fights, there's an elevator ride. And so I, okay. I couldn't get through it. And so I just like, I, I rode that elevator so many times. Oh, why'd they do that? So what have you been playing, Jim? Anything good? I'm dishonored. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the, the main new one. I'm s- still chugging away on couples halo 4 nice yeah i think the, yeah the last game i was playing in in rotating custody of the xbox uh the last game i was playing by myself was xcom and i've been playing it i've i switched over to playing iron man on easy as uh i think tobald's in you recommended and that was a lot of fun but i i could i could see it start running out of fun for me i would play levels and I would feel like I didn't get that much out of it, even though it was fun, like having that encounter. So I think that's why I switched over to Dishonored to have a game with with more of a uh, a narrative arc. Yeah, I hear you. How about you, Tom? Um, well, the only uh, video game I've been playing is uh, Daryl Dungeon Raid, not uh, sort of a Connect whatever game. Then on iOS, I'm all I've also gotten. Uh, in, into playing Pinball Arcade, which is a, a collection of a bunch of mostly Williams uh, pinball games that they render in 3D and have a decent physics engine. And it's you know, free to play, but you end up paying for uh, uh, each of the tables you like, 4 or $5 each. And wow. uh, I've been playing Medieval Madness quite a bit. It's still a very fun game. Oh, because that, that, that one isn't in your basement, right? You have the that, Circus Voltaire one, but not... Right, and, and Pinbot and Black yeah. Knight 2000, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, I've I, um, been doing some traveling again, so been spending some time on the, the iPad. So I played through Waking Mars, enjoyed it very much, and... Uh, actually dusted off uh, Pirates on, on the I, iPad and have been enjoying that. I, I keep coming back to that game. I have, I have not played It's that. a Sid Meier game. You know, it's a, you should just grab it. It's, it's fun to play. It's an old old PC game, and it shows it sometimes, but they've, they've managed to streamline it pretty good. I, I just started today uh, Lily on, uh, on the iPad. In, in my tireless surfing of the best uh, iOS games, that, that kept popping up. I'm, I'm not totally sure what I, I think of it now, but the one thing I can say about it is it's the first game in which the, that I can remember in which the protagonist is a, uh, a graduate student in an unobscured field. Well, there you go. Just talking about graduate school is enough for me to play it for an hour to find, see if I find the flower-pulling action to be 
uh, interesting. There you go. That's scratching that itch. Now, Tom and I have both been playing the heck out of tanks, of course. It's the fire still burns on. And we've all been playing letterpress, I see, happily. Yeah. I've, I've, I feel like my letterpress has like entered a new phase. Uh, I started playing against my brother and immediately realized that, that his strategy was better than mine. So I had to resign a few games that I was clearly just going to lose and ad- adapt my strategy. And now we're in the middle of a, of a hard-fought one. That's good to hear. I'd like to see you evolving. I refuse to evolve in that game. I'm, I like my rut. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm good with that. I find with Letterpress, like, I, I'm not shy about resigning when I know I'm totally going to lose because th- those, like, painful... Slow collapses, yeah. Slow collapses are painful. As, as, painful long, as, you, as, long, as long as you follow up the res- resignation with a new, new invite, I think it's, it's legit. Yeah. Um, that's great. Well, guys, thanks for the uh, session today. I appreciated it. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Happy happy shoveling. This has been the Game Theory Podcast, Episode 15, Design Innovation. Thanks for listening.